Did you grow up in an alcoholic or dysfunctional family? How has this affected your life? Welcome to episode 203 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Solange, John, Debbie, and Neva. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Solange, John, Debbie, and Neva for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly helpless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer and I'm your host today. Joining me today is Emily. Welcome, Emily. Hi, Spencer. Emily, you chose a reading for us. Yes, I chose a daily reading from an ACA daily reader. So for May 18th, the title is Service. The quote is, Meanwhile, those who are spiritually awake accept 12-step work with an attitude of service rather than sacrifice. By the time we reach this step, we know the difference between being a rescuer and giving service with love. Big Red Book, page 289. Placing the solution and problem on the walls does not a meeting make. Reading the opening script and closing down the meeting doesn't make a meeting either. What makes the meeting is the spirit with which these tasks are done. Giving service from a space of love in ACA is a spiritually enhancing experience for all involved. By the time we have been in ACA for a while, after having taken the steps and being graced with a spiritual awakening, our ability to do service from love has also been established. We know the difference between control and service. We know of tolerance and boundaries. We know how to be thoughtful, realizing we are only seeking to follow the group's conscience and furtherance of our primary purpose, to carry the message to the suffering adult child who is seeking recovery. Adult children are attracted to spiritually awakened ACAs and groups and wish to help keep the doors open. We realize that were it not for the meeting, we might have little hope of recovering, and we trust each other since our service comes with no strings attached. On this day, I will give service to the ACA Fellowship from love realizing that I am supporting my own progress when I help make another member's progress possible. Wow. You know, I'm not familiar with the ACA program, but I love that reading because to me, I I just feel like that sort of lays out the whole purpose of the program. It does. I really like this reading also, Spencer, because it reminds me that I am not here to rescue everyone, which is what I want to do. We'll read a little bit later in the laundry list, but that is one of the traits of an adult child of alcoholics is that we want to, I want to rescue everyone. And that's just not my responsibility. And that's what this reading reminds me of. It's not my responsibility. I totally connect with that wanting to rescue people. Um, As I've said before, I did not grow up in an alcoholic home, but I identify a lot of codependent traits in my mother and I have to believe, especially given the alcoholism in her branch of the family, that there was alcoholism back there somewhere and that that those traits have come down from wherever it was. And I'm never going to know, right, because those people are all dead now. Mm -hmm. What is ACA? ACA 
for adult children of alcoholics is a 12-step program. Um, and it grew out of a, a group of Alateens in New York in the late 1970s. So when these Alateens, you know, stopped being teenagers and outgrew the Alateen program, the next step would have kind of been Al-Anon. But what they found when they came into Al-Anon was that their discussions kind of centered around neglect, abuse, and fear, you know, all things that they kind of um, felt from their childhoods. And they didn't really feel like they could fully share that at Al-Anon meetings. Hmm. So they ended up starting another meeting that didn't have an Al-Anon affiliation where they, they could talk about these things. And this, this other meeting had a lot of Al-Anons, but it also included a lot of alcoholics, a lot of people that were in AA, basically a bunch of people that came from alcoholic families or dysfunctional families where there was abuse in the home, things like that. At one point, after they had this group and it got pretty large, they were approached by people in Al-Anon about joining up with Al-Anon, but... They would have had to have given up the laundry list, which is something we're going to talk about in just a minute. And unanimously, they said, no, we're not going to do that. So they decided to remain ACA, and that's how they became their own 12-step program. So I think that's pretty cool. You identify as an adult child, and you said a little bit about how the focus of ACA is different from the focus of Al-Anon. And I think from what I heard was that in Al-Anon, many of us who are Al-Anon members are dealing with spouses, significant others, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, or children who are alcoholics, and that the issues that come out of that particular relationship with an alcoholic or addict are in a fundamental way different from the issues that come out of growing up in an alcoholic home or a dysfunctional home. Is that true? Mm-hmm. First, I just want to touch on the name of the program, I think, is a little bit misleading, because though the name of it is Adult Children of Alcoholics, it's actually a really inclusive program. It's intended for anyone that was raised in a family where dysfunction was present in childhood. That is literally the only requirement for membership. Your parents did not have to actually pick up a drink for you to be a member of ACA. The minute that I read the laundry list, I knew that I was going to be a member of ACA. I just knew it. I did grow up in an alcoholic household. And yeah, you're right. The Al-Anon and ACA, they serve different purposes for me. Al-Anon, I think, was more focused on being powerless over alcohol. For me, that meant in my adult life, in my more present relationships. And ACA was more focused on being powerless over the effects of being raised as a child in a dysfunctional family. So I came into Al-Anon to help make sense of my life with my um, alcoholic husband. And at that point, my life was completely unmanageable. I mean, I had tried to control every aspect of my life for so long that I was so sick. My physical body was sick. My emotional body was sick. Every part of me was so sick from living with this active alcoholism and drug addiction and from just trying to manage everything. So what I learned in Al-Anon were so many tools that I could use to stop trying to control or to be affected by other people's thoughts, feelings, and actions. And then I learned how to be responsible for my own, which was fabulous and it was wonderful. But when I found ACA and I read that laundry list, I immediately knew that I was going to be learning why I needed those tools. 
why I had made the choices in life that I had made and why I was the way that I was and why I felt so broken. So for me, the two programs really play different parts in my recovery. They're really, they touch on different parts. And I really feel that I need both of them for separate reasons. Thank you for that. I have a lot of friends. I have some sponsees in the Al-Anon program who are also in AA. They say the same kind of thing, that the two programs address different issues and are both really important to them. And that they can't like take one over the other because they have both kinds of issues in their life. So you've mentioned the laundry list a few times, and maybe it's time to actually say, what is this thing? And, and how does it, how does it help people to identify with the program? Yeah, the laundry list was so powerful for me. Basically, it's just a compiled list of common behaviors that characteristics of adult children tend to share. It was compiled by this gentleman named Tony A., who was one of the original ACAs. He was also um, an alcoholic. He was in AA, and he grew up in a violent home. He threw together these these traits, and someone said in a meeting, well, that's my laundry list, and so they called it the laundry list. Okay. When I hear alcoholics in recovery talk about the big book, and I'll hear them say, you know, when I read it, I heard my story. You know, that was that's me in that book. That was how I felt when I read the laundry list. It was very much like an, oh no, this is me. <laughs> it was it was humbling and frightening and comforting. It was a reminder and also a relief that I'm not unique and also I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. And if you don't mind, I would like to read the laundry list. I would love for you to read the laundry list. Okay, I will do that. Okay, so this is the laundry list. Number one, we became isolated and afraid of people and authority figures. Two, we became approval seekers and lost our identity in the process. Three, we are frightened by angry people and any personal criticism. Four, we either become alcoholics, marry them, or both, or find another compulsive personality, such as a workaholic, to fulfill our sick abandonment needs. Five, we live life from the viewpoint of victims, and we are attracted by that weakness in our love and friendship relationships. Six, we have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, and it's easier for us to be concerned with others rather than ourselves. This enables us not to look too closely at our own faults. Seven, we get guilt feelings when we stand up for ourselves instead of giving in to others. Eight, we became addicted to excitement. Nine, we confuse love and pity and tend to love people we can pity and rescue. Ten, we have stuffed our feelings from our traumatic childhoods and have lost the ability to feel or express our feelings because it hurts so much. Eleven, we judge ourselves harshly and have a very low sense of self-esteem. Twelve, we are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings, which we received from living with sick people who were never there for us emotionally. Thirteen, alcoholism is a family disease, and we became para-alcoholics and took on the characteristics of that disease, even though we did not pick up the drink. Fourteen, para-alcoholics are reactors rather than actors. That is the laundry list. As you're reading that, I was I was sort of keeping tally, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was. Uh, uh-huh. So we became isolated and afraid of people and authority, thirty figures. Um, yes, sort of. 
We became approval seekers and lost our identity. Yes. We were frightened by angry people and personal criticism. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> we became alcoholics, married them, or both. Yes, I married one. Mm-hmm. And I married another person who was in, you know, in need of rescue. Mm-hmm. We live life from the viewpoint of victims. Not so sure about that one. Okay. We have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. It is easier for us to be concerned with others rather than ourselves. Yes. Mm-hmm. We get guilt feelings when we stand up for ourselves instead of giving in to others. Maybe. We become addicted to excitement. I don't think so. We confuse love and pity and tend to love people we can pity and rescue. So I, I, that second part of that, when I look back at my life, most of the people that I got into relationships with were people that I could rescue. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know about pity, but rescue, yeah. As far as I can tell, I did not have a traumatic childhood, so that one doesn't really apply. We judge ourselves harshly and have a very low sense of self-esteem, yes, we are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment. So that's an interesting one. I do tend to hold on to things because I don't want them to go away. I don't know about terrified of abandonment, but that might be a description. Alcoholism is a family disease. So like I said, there was not alcoholism in my immediate family, although I have an uncle and a cousin who I do identify as alcoholic. So it was in the extended family somewhere. And reactors rather than actors, I think that's probably true. So, wow. Okay. Um, (laughs) I'm not an adult child of an alcoholic. I don't feel like I grew Mm -hmm. up in a dysfunctional family, but I do, I do identify with a lot of these traits and, and it doesn't really surprise me. And I think it is, is that although my immediate family was not alcoholic, there is some, descendant influence on the way I developed and on the way I view life. And as we were saying before we started recording, when I look at this list and I look at at my children, I'm like, yeah, 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 probably, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I've got enough Al-Anon under my belt to know that if I were to go to them and say, hey, you know what, you should like, you should go to ACA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> probably not going to happen. Well, I know, you know, in particular, one of my children who who has has expressed over the years since she was old enough to really talk about what she felt, which maybe uh, the last decade um, has said things to me that want, have had me wanted to say, you know, there is help for that. Mm-hmm. And she just doesn't want to hear that. And I don't, maybe you can connect with this statement that she told me some years ago. She said, you know, I feel like if I went to Al-Anon or, you know, I didn't really know about ACA at the point. So she said, if I went, if I go to Al-Anon, I feel like that my mother wins. Mm. Whoa. Mm, that's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and I tried to say, you know, it's not about her. It's about you. Right. Wow. She doesn't know that yet. Yeah. I think she's getting there. We had a conversation last night about, about making choices and about, you know, her question was, how do I know if I'm making a good choice? How do I know if this thing that I think I want to do 
that requires some significant changes, how do I know if this is, is the right thing? I don't trust myself to make this decision. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I was already thinking about the fact that we were doing this, this conversation today and like, mm-hmm. and I had read a little bit about ACA and I said, you know, I said, this, this really sounds like a characteristic of somebody who grew up in an alcoholic home. Yeah. And she was able to hear that. Definitely. And when I have to make those choices now, I have to talk to a bunch of people in recovery to get good advice. <laughs> so ACA is a 12-step program, mm-hmm. but there are there's a couple of differences from the original AA 12 steps. From my reading, the most significant difference is in the first step. The first step is really important, I think. So with the first step of ACA... I was looking at the effects of alcoholism and family dysfunction, not only in my life, but also on a larger scale. So not just in my immediate life. Mm -hmm. I was able to see in step one that the dysfunction in my family runs so deep that it's been happening for generations, you know, just like you kind of touched on. One of the things that you do in step one, there's a yellow workbook in ACA that you can do the steps in. And one of the exercises in it is doing a family diagram. And it's a very extensive family diagram where you kind of map out your whole family and, you know, any traits that the people in your family have had. Well, my family is quite extensive. I mean, my mom had 10 siblings. Wow. And yes, and a a decent number of them I can identify as alcoholics or addicts. And all of them, except for one, had children, and many of them have had children. So my family diagram was pretty large, and it really got me thinking. You know, I was calling people in my family saying, you know, do you think that that grandpa was an alcoholic? And, you know, I knew that my grandma was and that she had gone to AA meetings. And so it really, it really got me looking at the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. So what I learned through step one was that despite my best efforts, despite my parents' best efforts, despite their parents' best efforts, the dysfunction is passed on no matter what, unless you go into recovery. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I made myself absolutely crazy trying to control my choices, trying to change the outcome, trying to break free from the dysfunction. I did what every other ACA seems to do. I said, I'm not going to be like my mom. That was my alcoholic growing up. I'm not going to be like my mom. You know, I'm not going to be like my parents. I'm going to do better. But without seeking recovery, without doing the things that you need to do to be in recovery, you don't have any other choice. You just don't. You don't have any other choice. And that was step one in ACA was seeing that you just, you're truly powerless over the dysfunction. And so were your parents. And so were your parents' parents. It's really powerful. I mean, it it helps give me a lot of compassion, too. So what is the first step? How does that read? I have my big red book, which is the book for ACA. By the way, there is another laundry list in addition to the laundry list. I saw that. I saw that on the ACA website. There's like... <laughs> The laundry list and the flip side of the laundry list and the other laundry list and the flip side of the other laundry list. It's like, yeah, there's a lot. (laughs) 
if you don't qualify for all the things on the laundry list, you qual- probably qualify for a lot of things the on other the other one, laundry right? list. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, so the first step in the ACA 12 steps is we admitted we were powerless over the effects of alcoholism or other family dysfunction that our lives had become unmanageable. Another really key thing for me with step one was talking to other ACAs who, you know, they didn't grow up in the exact same situation that I did. I didn't grow up in an abusive household. What I experienced more was emotional neglect. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking to other ACAs who have come out of sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, but we all have the same characteristics regardless of what our family situation was when we grew up. We all have the same characteristics, and that is mind-blowing, and it just further reinforces for me how powerless we all are, how powerless we all are over this dysfunction. And it was just, it's so powerful for me. That's how the first step is different. You know, when I did Al-Anon, I could accept no problem that, you know, I was powerless over alcohol. Mm-hmm. But this one this step in ACA just went, it went deeper and further and wider than I could imagine. It was like, wow, it really, it really made me look at a bigger picture and it gave me a lot of compassion for my mother and my family as a whole. You know, they didn't want to put this dysfunction on me and they didn't, you know, nobody wants their children to be dysfunctional. It's just something that happens. Absolutely. I got a couple of voicemails from listeners talking about their experience as adult children. And I want to play a voicemail from Phil. Hi, Spencer. This is Phil. I was calling in regards to you asking to for people to share their experiences about the Adult Children of Alcoholics program and how it's similar and different to Al-Anon. Um, first of all, I just want to say that I, you know, I really appreciate the show. This show has really helped me to, first of all, feel connected to a community of other people who are, are seeking recovery and also, um, you know, helped equip me with some tools to go out and, and build a more personal face-to-face type of uh, recovery community for myself. I found this show when I was going through a very difficult time in my life when I was first starting out on my recovery journey. And, you know, just it really means a lot. So thanks for all that you do. In, 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 in regards to the program, I guess the first thing that kind of jumps out to me is that both programs seem to work toward a similar sense of peace and serenity um, or sanity. I guess all those could be used kind of interchangeably. Um, I mean, it does that through similar practices, um, practicing similar principles, I guess you should say. In my opinion, ACOA focuses more on the origin of those core wounds that occur in childhood which, you know, make the dysfunction that adult children of alcoholics find themselves in later on in life make sense in the first place. So, you know, a lot of ACOA members a lot of times have lack of appropriate boundaries. A lot of codependent behaviors are developed, you know, as a result of being uh, raised in an alcoholic home. Um, A lot of times they have a high tolerance for dysfunction and chaos, which kind of makes them perfect partners for, you know, alcoholics and other unhealthy personality types. And so I guess, you know, it seems that both programs are doing very similar things, but just maybe the focus is a little bit different in terms of how it all makes sense. 
and ACOA, I know that I have really spent a lot of time going back and paying attention to the things that I learned in childhood. Um, you know, why, how I learned that putting everybody else's needs before my own was, was the healthy way to somehow get my needs met, which obviously doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you step back from the craziness. You know, so anyway, those are just some of my thoughts. Um, keep doing the good work. Thanks. Bye. Phil called back a, a little bit later with this. Hey, Spencer, it's Phil again. In the nervousness of leaving my first message on the machine there, um, I forgot an important part of my my first message. So one thing that I heard when I first started working through the adult children of alcoholics literature was that adult children guess at what's normal. Um, and that one really kind of stood out to me. Um, and I think it makes a lot of stuff make sense. When your normal is chaos and turmoil and, you know, people not showing up, you know, and that sort of thing, then it really makes it difficult to <laughs> to then go out in the world and build any kind of a healthy foundation for yourself in terms of relationships or otherwise. And so, yeah, that, that whole idea of, you know, adult children kind of guessing at what's normal and kind of putting the pieces together because of all the, you know, the, the messages that they should have gotten in childhood, you know, things like um, you have value you know, which doesn't depend on your ability to take care of someone else or isn't contingent on some kind of achievement or something else external. Like, you know, a lot of times adult children don't get that message. And so I think it's just an example of a lot of messages that they don't get. But uh, I just felt like that needed to be said with regard to the first message that I left. So thanks again. Bye. Thank you, Phil, for sharing your experience and your understanding of the program. Emily, I have to ask how you understand or connect with, with, with what Phil shared. Yeah, Phil really hit the nail on the head there about ACA, about everything. Yeah, he really did. I feel ACA really does get to the origin of, of your core wounds, and it is painful work. It's hard work. It really is, but it is worth it. It is worth it. And the second message, Gosh, when I read that in that literature, that ACA's guess at what is normal, I was floored. I mean, I was floored. I was on my way to uh, New Orleans in a car with some girlfriends, and I read that in a book, in an ACA book, and I was like frantically texting pictures of that to um, some of my fellow ACAs, and I was like, oh my God, we don't know what normal is. This makes so much sense. Like everything was connecting. If you learn from people who are also adult children, they don't know what normal is either. So, you know, you're learning from people who don't know what normal is, and it's just this this constant, nobody knows what the heck is going on. So <laughs> thank you, Phil, for that. That was, that was ACA right there. So I want to maybe talk a little bit about this normal or not knowing what's normal thing. Mm-hmm. So in Al-Anon, we talk about sharing our experience, strength, and hope so that we or someone else if someone else is speaking, then me, or if I'm speaking, then someone else might identify mm-hmm. and un- understand here a way to maybe move forward, to do something 
differently, to understand something differently, or just to understand something. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times I've had this experience in a meeting where somebody speaks of their own experience and this this light bulb goes on in my head like, oh my God, that's me. Mm-hmm. What are you doing living in my head? <laughs> and I heard that in what you just said about the, the reading that you made. But then you also said like adult children learning from adult children, this none of us know what's normal. And and how does how does that work in the program? Because I you know, I know in Al Anon, like I I mean, I hear things from people who are new that I identify with and that illuminate things for me, but I also hear things from people who've been in the program for a long time who have gained somewhat I like to think of at least as wisdom that I can follow. Mm-hmm. And is that I assume that's also true in ACA. So I think I know that maybe normal is not the correct word to use because, you know, what is normal? I think maybe the word to use is healthy. We don't know what healthy is. And Mm -hmm. that is something that we kind of have to teach each other through our studies, through our 12-step work through other people that have already worked the program, through literature. Here's a good example. I went through a breakup recently, and I didn't know that ACAs can experience post-traumatic stress. I didn't know that. I've read it at some point, but you know, just kind of glossed over it because I thought, that doesn't apply to me. So there was a point after this breakup where I was experiencing what I thought was like a panic attack. And I had reached out to this ACA friend of mine and he was able to use his experience through therapy and counseling. And he kind of talked me down. He said, you know, Emily, this is what you're experiencing. Sounds a lot like post-traumatic stress. And he guided me towards the literature and said, you know, why don't you read this and take some deep breaths? And we kind of did some grounding exercises and got me through it. Learning those tools helped me to use it when someone came to me later and was having the same kind of situation. It's the same kind of thing in Al-Anon, but the meetings are different. And this was one of the things that we were going to talk about. How are the meetings different? Yeah. So meetings I have found are very different for, for me. It's been my experience that ACA meetings, first of all, they're more inclusive. So like I said earlier, all you have to have is a dysfunctional family Mm. (laughs) to come to an ACA meeting. That's it. What I've found, um, at least in my area, is that some AA meetings and Al-Anon meetings, it's frowned upon to go in and speak about other programs or to talk about substances other than alcohol. In ACA, it's acceptable to go in and identify as an alcoholic, as an addict, as an Al-Anon, whatever it is that you identify as. I like that because it doesn't make you feel shame for being, you know, whatever it is that you identify as, and it doesn't make you feel excluded. And then another huge difference for me was that there is no crosstalk. I didn't even understand fully what crosstalk was until I went to an ACA meeting in Indianapolis. And I realized as I was sitting there that they weren't commenting on each other's shares. 
they weren't discussing what anyone else had shared and they were not interrupting each other at all. You know, I would say what I wanted to say and then at the end it would move on to the next person. Um, there was no, no discussing, no one discussed anyone else's anything hmm. in every single Al-Anon and AA meeting that I've been to in my city. There's crosstalk. It's just common practice here. <laughs> I mean, when I look at ACA, it makes complete sense to me that there wouldn't be crosstalk because if you grow up in a family where there's alcoholism or there's dysfunction, often children aren't given a voice or they're told that they're wrong if they do have a voice. So if you're in an ACA meeting, it's supposed to be a safe place where you can share whatever you want, whatever you feel without anyone else's comment. And that is a really powerful and empowering tool for someone who feels like they have been, you know, stifled for their whole life. Mm -hmm. You don't get that in my Al-Anon meetings in particular, you get that back and forth. You know, if someone says they're struggling with anger, I can kind of address them in the meeting. We just don't do that in ACA. So you have to kind of talk to people outside of meetings and find other ways to connect to share that experience. I think I want to dig into that one a little bit. All of the meetings that I attend, with the exception of one that I go to rarely, which is also a men's meeting, which might have something to do with it, I don't know, identify themselves as meetings that don't have crosstalk. By which we mostly mean that we don't we don't respond directly to what somebody said we don't try to give advice mm -hmm. we don't ask questions we don't interrupt but in those meetings different people do this differently and actually i'm interested in your sort of response to some of these so people might say i've heard some things today that really make me that really connect that I really connect with and and here's my experience or they might say thank you Mary for for what you said because that really opened up something for me or something in between those and occasionally and and I have actually in one of my meetings I somebody to me really crossed the line when he addressed somebody directly about what they had said and I said, excuse me, I believe that's crosstalk and that's not in the tradition of this meeting. But mostly, most people are at least subtle about it a little bit, like not saying, oh, wow, you know, you're full of shit kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But there's this spectrum of, I heard some things tonight that I really connect with and I'd like to share my experience to what you said made me think of or that's my experience too. Is that whole spectrum not happening in your ACA meetings? I'm just curious. I don't know. The closest thing to crosstalk that I heard in that ACA meeting was probably the first example that you gave there. Mm -hmm. Based on some of the things I've heard tonight, you know, this is my experience. That's the closest thing that I heard to crosstalk. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. Prior to that, that's it, hard yeah, to it, do. Oh, my God. It was very hard. Prior to that, I mean, we started our meeting in, in our city based on we had never been to an ACA meeting hmm. anywhere because there are, I think, only 14 ACA meetings in Indiana, period. As, as the whole state? 
the whole state. <laughs> so our closest meeting to our city was in Indianapolis, which is an hour and some change away. So the red book tells you how to start a meeting. So we started our meeting and we just based it off of our Al-Anon meetings. We were a group of Al-Anons and we just based it off of our Al-Anon meetings. And when I went to that ACA meeting in Indianapolis, I came back and I was like, oh, guys, guys, um, we're cross-talking. <laughs> we're cross-talking every single meeting. We need to stop doing that. And so we now are making every effort to not do that. <laughs> and I understand why. It makes perfect sense to me. Um, because, you know, when I first came into Al-Anon, I could not express my feelings. I could not do it. It was like there was a block inside of me that said, you know, you don't, you can't talk about that. You can't, I was like, I couldn't even get it out. So it was a long time before I could even share anything. So if someone had tried to crosstalk when I was trying to share, I mean, it probably would have shoved me right back. So I get it. It makes sense to me, but it was, it was something we had to learn. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was a learning curve. Yeah. I'm, I do understand that. I think I'm going to move on here. It's just, it's, it is a difficult, it is difficult. And, and particularly I find in, in smaller meetings where most of the people have been coming to the meeting for a while and we know each other. Yeah. It's really easy to cross talk. Like I have to yeah. make a conscious effort not to do it sometimes. Right. Cause it's just like a group of friends having yeah. a talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were, you were talking about, how many meetings? And I thought, well, okay. So I live in Michigan. There, according to the uh, Adult Children of Alcoholics website, there are 34 meetings in Michigan. Wow. And then I looked at my city, which is not a big city, 100,000 people roughly. There are three meetings in the city I live in. So, wow, <laughs> we're blessed. Yeah, you are. We had zero. We had to start our own. And a fair number of Al-Anon meetings. I don't really know how many and lots and lots of AA meetings, of course. I'd like to, I think at this point, play a contribution from Diana. And she starts out talking about some of the literature, not specifically the, the adult children of alcoholics literature. Okay. I read a book by Dr. Henry Cloud called Boundaries. That was another really life-changing book. And then I went on to the Melody Beattie books of Codependence, Codependent Omar, and um, she's probably my favorite author. But definitely resonated and hit a nerve, you know, seeking approval, extreme perfectionism, being afraid of the chaos, managers of the world around us, being able to keenly read into people and situations, have difficulty identifying with your own feelings, sometimes afraid to feel your own feelings. I can say growing up with a schizophrenic, one of the main fears for me was becoming crazy like my mother. And I thought that by feeling my feelings, that was going to somehow lead me down the crazy path, you know, because especially there's a lot of trauma that you kind of have to face off with. And it's like, are these feelings, because they're so dark and scary, are they going to drive me to addiction? Are they going to drive me to 
deep depression, you know, and there's a lot of acceptance that comes with that, which is why I totally believe in having a skilled professional kind of lead you through a lot of this stuff. Um, and that was the path that I chose to take versus a sponsor. I've been working with a therapist for about five years and kind of led me carefully down that road and said, you're safe now. You don't need to look out the people and be afraid that the atomic bomb is going to drop and you can safely detach from your family. You can begin to um, express how you feel and this is a safe place to do it and we're going to heal together discovering that I was unlucky and that that was one tiny section corner of the world you know not the whole world as a whole because I think sometimes when you grow up in trauma you you get those beliefs in you that that's everyone and that you have to live guarded you have to have walls you have to be careful and you know I think there's some truth to that obviously we should have a filter in our life of who's close and who isn't but Therapy was a safe place, you know, to come out, express my feelings, talk about the past, heal from everything, accept the truths, living in a world of realities, you know, the world as it is, I wanted to say, not living in illusion or delusion or with rose-colored glasses of the hopes that someday mom would be cured, you know, of her schizophrenia or that... um, you know somehow I would get to relive a different childhood than I did you only get one childhood and unfortunately mine was hell so anyway I wanted to share my experience and um, I just thank you so much all right bye thank you Diana Diana has has contributed before and and I think one of the things that I get from from her share is that this program adult children of alcoholics as you said does provide support benefit to people whose primary life situation was not alcoholism but but another dysfunction mm-hmm. definitely the literature she was talking about i the name melody beady definitely stuck out i've seen some of her books i haven't read them yet yeah. um i'm up to my ears in books right now but <laughs> definitely melody beady that's a a common name around ACA and that codependency. I mean, that's another common thread between Al-Anon and ACA is codependency. I had no idea that I was codependent. I mean, I really thought I was independent. <laughs> I really thought I was. Really, until I came into ACA. Even in Al-Anon, I, I still thought I was independent for a while. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, literature. And then I also have heard a number of people say that they have worked the ACA steps with a therapist or a counselor, quite a few people. So I think that seems to be a common thing also, that people tend to do that with a therapist or a counselor. It's a safe place to do that too. So, But yeah, I really love that about ACA, that it's not just for you know one specific group. It's very inclusive, and I really love that. Diana called us again a while later, actually, with sort of life experience and also a question about staying connected or not with the family she grew up in, and I think in particular with her mother. Hi, Diana here. This is mostly a topic suggestion about choosing to keep someone in your life who is perpetually broken and some of the tools that various people use while loving someone who is broken two of people you know people close to me i've i've had to detach from completely but i did make the choice with my mom to keep her in my life and 
I do have some skills that I use with her that I've learned in therapy. One is detachment. And when I can feel that the conversation is, you know, turning my face red or my heart's starting to pound or I'm starting to feel fear or worry, I will say, you know, I got to go. I do try to limit our talks to once a month. I try to limit our actual conversations to less than five minutes so that less damage can be done. Obviously, that's a relationship for me that I walk away every time feeling that she really gets me upset and there's nothing really added. But the reason I chose to keep her in my life was because I do care about her. I'm like the one person in her world that looks out for her. And um, it is kind of like the equivalent of trying to keep the toddler from dancing in the freeway. (laughs) That's kind of how it feels. I don't let her have any contact with my daughter or future child. Um, Just too much there. So it's hard, but I trust her to God and I commit that anxiety and that pressure that I try to take on my shoulders of feeling responsible for her and feeling responsible to fix her mess and keep the bumpers up and make sure she's walking straight. Um, I commit that to God. And another tool that I learned in therapy was setting the bar really low and keeping my expectations really, really low and going into a situation expecting to hear some drama, some chaos, some, some crazy, because that has been the pattern for three decades and that helps me a lot to not do the Pollyanna thing and have the rose-colored glasses on but to keep the expectations really really low and I think accepting her exactly as she is and loving her at face value and realizing She's never going to be the person to go out and uh, earn her Ph.D. and, uh, I don't know, whatever dream or vision that's the highest thing you can imagine. You know, it's it's pretty remarkable for her to not fall apart for an entire month. Um, it's pretty remarkable for her to not invite homeless people or strangers to live with her. She deals with hoarding, so, you know, to not have a crazy messy house so you just kind of go into it with this realism and accept what is and keep everything really low keep expectations really really low don't expect her to be a parent don't expect her to be anything for you realize she is just like a broken child and there's nothing that I can ever obtain from her or ever should need from her and I look for that elsewhere to fill me um, and I basically I'm there for her. So those are some of the, the skills that I've learned with her. But curious about other people's thoughts of particularly in adult children of alcoholics and how they deal with their parents and those interactions. All right. Take care. Yeah, a lot of what she said resonated with me. And honestly, a lot of the skills that she's talking about are skills that I learned in Al-Anon. You know, boundaries. I didn't even know that I could set boundaries. Mm-hmm. Until I got into Al-Anon, I didn't know what boundaries were. I didn't know I could set them. So I had a lot of learning to do about boundaries. And now I know that if my boundaries are being crossed or if I'm struggling with something that should be a boundary, it feels I can feel it in my body before I figure out that 
it's something that I need to deal with, that it's a boundary that I need to set. And I talk to people in recovery constantly. I mean, constantly. People in both of my programs, in Al-Anon and in ACA, because they, you know, won't give me advice, but they will ask me questions that will lead me to my own conclusions about boundaries, about the boundaries that I need to set for me, or am I crossing my own boundary, or do I need to reset my boundary? Detachment has been one of the biggest blessings that I've gotten from Al-Anon. And it was one of those things when I came in to Al-Anon and they told me about this loving detachment. And I was like, well, what the hell is that? And how do you get it? Like, what do you, do you just follow X, Y, and Z and you get loving detachment? (laughs) You know, what do you, what do I have to do? (laughs) Well, it turns out you just like work the program and then, you you know, you, you find a little bit of loving detachment here and there. (laughs) That's what I found. That's the X, Y, and Z is you work the program. That loving detachment is huge. It's so huge. And I don't feel it every single day. And I really struggle with it with my parent. I can feel loving detachment towards a lot of alcoholic or dysfunctional people in my life. But with my parent, it is much harder for me to get that detachment. And it's much harder for me to set those boundaries with my parent. So... I relate. (laughs) I relate to her about those things and feeling responsible. Gosh, I've spent my whole life feeling responsible for my parent, for my alcoholic mother. And she's been in recovery for eight years. She's been sober for eight years. I still feel responsible for her. So I think I don't know why, but I think it's just harder when that person is your parent. It's just hard. It's just really difficult. And so I really rely heavily on the people that I know that are in recovery and I reach out to them constantly and I just work the program as best I can and I do my very best and I pray every single day to my higher power and that's all I can do is just the best that I can do. That's all I can do. Yeah. I want to start by thanking Diana and and everybody else who calls in to the recovery show for being so open and so honest. Yeah. As you may know from listening to past episodes, my mother is, I believe, reaching the end of her life. I don't have past issues with her other than the way she brought me up to be codependent, but, you know, (laughs) she did the best she could. Um, And she was a good mother. But in recent years, it's been difficult for me. Because she is, she is not the person she was. And so when Diana talked about expectations, mm-hmm. and Diana talked about setting expectations low, and for me, I prefer to call that setting them realistically, because low feels like a judgment to me. Okay, mm-hmm. that's just me. And realistically, so I called my mother recently because it was Mother's Day, right? Mm -hmm. I called her late in the evening because, you know, I, quote, forgot. And, And I think that is about the fear that I have, the fear that I'm losing her. I know I'm losing her. I know, you know, she's, what is she, 86 this year and in declining health, which has been true for a while. 
And so when I talk to her, I'm reminded of that more explicitly than just when I am not talking to her. And so when I called, the fact that she actually remembered things from that day and and that she had gone to the symphony with my sister and and my father the night before and you know that it had been a nice day and and you know she thought it had been sunny all day and apparently it wasn't but you know um we take what we can get mm-hmm. and and the fact that she had some picture of of what her day had been was at least at and I think above the the realistic expectations that I had set and so it was a good conversation I talked to my sister maybe the next day she expressed her concerns because she she lives near them so she sees them frequently and and I live you know a day's drive away basically and so I don't see them frequently and my sister talked about how she sees how our mother is and that she falls asleep just sort of, you know, randomly. To me, that reminded me of my father-in-law shortly before he died. We'd be sitting and talking and he would fall asleep and then he'd wake up and, and he'd be a little disoriented, like, where am I? What's going on? And so I have to, I have to value the time that we still have. Because my realistic expectation is it's not long. And I could be wrong about that, and that would be great. Like I said, for me, it's it's about being realistic, about not expecting the people I love to be more than they can be at the moment. Mm-hmm. Like you said, that is absolutely something that I learned in recovery. It is not something that was taught to me growing up or it's not something maybe people tried to teach it to me i don't know i wasn't listening if they did (laughs) (laughs) we don't listen to this kind of stuff until we absolutely have to right right not until we're in enough pain not until we're in enough pain yep we're getting near the end of our time here and i want to just ask a couple of questions that maybe go together maybe don't besides what you've already said which is a lot how do you feel that aca has helped you to recover and what might you say to somebody who maybe thinks they might benefit, maybe knows they grew up in a dysfunctional home, but hasn't taken the energy to get to a meeting. Right. What would you say to somebody who's, who's there, who's not quite there? ACA has really been a tremendous tool in my recovery. It's forced me to become vulnerable before I came into ACA, I, well, before I came into Al-Anon, really, I had all these walls built up, you know, so you could not penetrate these walls. No one could come in. I was real tough. When I came into these recovery programs, it's really forced me to be vulnerable in ways that I didn't even know were possible. What I found out was that I had stuffed my feelings for so long that I didn't even know how to feel feelings. So I've spent over a year just learning how to distinguish my feelings, how to feel them. And there are some days where it's still incredibly overwhelming. You know, there are days I feel like a toddler. I feel like my four-year-old daughter knows how to feel feelings better than I do. Hmm. But 
it's something that I, I'm proud of myself that I'm learning how to do that because I just wasn't taught that. Because ACA is is less well-known, I think, than Al-Anon, I have had to reach out more for recovery. That has really been a blessing in itself. I really had to come out and, and reach out for it. So when I didn't feel like I was getting enough of it out of our group here, because we just met the one time a week, I started going to the online meetings on intherooms.com, and that really set my ACA recovery in motion. I think they right now have three meetings a week on In the Rooms. So I started reaching out to people online. Other ACAs are called fellow travelers. We refer to each other as fellow travelers. So I started reaching out to these fellow travelers online, and I really got hungry for ACA recovery. I was like, wow, these people, they're they are speaking my language. They have what I want. You know, and that was the same way I felt when I came into Al-Anon. You know, these people, they're laughing. They seem happy. They seem at peace, and I want that. And how do I get that? So forging some of those connections proved extremely helpful. Like I said earlier, when I was feeling painful, intense feelings that I didn't know what to do with, I didn't know how to cope with it, and I was able to use these people's experience, strength, and hope to get me through that and then pass that knowledge on to other people when they're in need. Those are things that I need fellow travelers for, just like in Al-Anon. You know, you need your other Al-Anons for their experience. And I love my Al-Anon companions. I talk to them every single day, and I also need my ACA people, too. I talk to them every day, every single day, too. In September, I'm actually going to go to my first ACA event. I'm registered for a weekend retreat on a mountain in Arizona. I'm really excited about that. So I'm really looking forward to being able to connect with some other ACA people in recovery in person and and learning. You know, they're going to have speakers and all sorts of things. So I'm really excited about that. And for people that, you know, are thinking about coming to ACA, I mean, I would say the same thing to to anyone considering coming to any 12-step meeting. You know, give it a try for six meetings. And if you don't like it, you don't have to come back. And if you need it later, you know exactly where it is. You know, when you're in that pain, you know where the meeting is. And the one thing I love, and I have loved about every meeting I've been to in any of the 12-step fellowships, is that I can always relate to something that is said. And maybe that's because, you know, I'm an adult child. I'm not an alcoholic, but I can go into an AA meeting and I can relate to something mm-hmm. that is said in that in that room, you know, and I can go to an Al-Anon meeting and I can relate to something and I can go to an ACA meeting and relate to something. I could probably go to an NA meeting and relate to something. And sometimes that is everything to just know that you're not alone. You're not the only person. You're not the only person that's feeling something. And sometimes I'll text an ACA friend during the day and just ask them, you know, do you ever feel like this? Or do you ever think this about yourself? And the answer is almost always yes. Those of us that have been raised in dysfunction or in an alcoholic household, we tend to be very similar. We tend to think the same way. We tend to have this low self-esteem and these unhealthy thoughts. So every time I'll be like, oh, do you ever just feel like you can never do anything right? And the answer is almost always, well, hell yes. I'm like, oh God, it's not just me. It's not just me. I'm not alone. <laughs> and that's why we need each other. That's why we need each other for recovery. Because it's like, okay, whew, I'm not alone. And then we use positive affirmations with each other all the time. 
positive affirmations I've found are just huge for my recovery. You know, I am worthy. I am worth everything. I'm worthy of healthy love. Just those positive affirmations are just everything. Mm -hmm. I think ACA has been everything for me. Al-Anon and ACA both. I'll I'll never be a one-program girl. I just won't. (laughs) I just won't do it. I think not being alone. Come to a meeting and you might discover you're not alone anymore. Yeah. Because that was my experience of my first Al-Anon meeting. That's what brought me back the second meeting was I wasn't alone anymore. Mm-hmm. That's so powerful. That is so powerful. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. And you've picked music for us. You are awesome, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Our first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website, at the recovery.show slash 203 is Martin Garrix and Dua Lipa. And the name of the song is Scared to Be Lonely. And oh boy, I mean, that title, <laughs> the title by itself resonates. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. So this song is really popular on the radio right now. And when I first heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's an ACA song. <laughs> I had just gone through a breakup and I was feeling very abandoned, lonely, and just petrified, scared to death. My ACA program and all of my ACA people were telling me that all of these feelings, these very, very intense feelings were tied in with the emotional abandonment that I had experienced growing up in an alcoholic household. And that I was feeling the abandonment coming out through this experience as an adult. And that was very powerful and petrifying and all these emotions wrapped up into one so that's why i chose that song in this section of the podcast we talk about our lives in recovery what's happening in our lives and our meetings this week and emily how's your week in recovery My week in recovery is pretty good, Spencer. I had my ACA meeting on Monday, and that was a pretty exciting meeting. We have just gotten a space for our meeting, and we filled out our paperwork to register our meeting with WSO. So we are like a legit ACA meeting now. All right. So that was pretty exciting. And I'm the group rep for it, which is also exciting. Service work is important and, you know, helps keep you connected. So that was great and very exciting. And we also have a newcomer to the meeting, which is also really exciting. We're a very, very small group. So that was great. Also, I've been working on step work in ACA. Mm-hmm. And the step work in ACA is very, very intense. (laughs) It's got a lot of questions. And as you can imagine, if you are dealing with the traumas of your childhood, it's pretty emotionally intense to go through the step work. One of the things I do really like about ACA is that you can do the step work with your fellow travelers. You don't necessarily have like a sponsor kind of situation because like it says in the laundry list we tend to be afraid 
of authority figures. It's just more kind of an easy, free-flowing setup with um, the step work and sponsorship. And I really like that, which is funny coming from someone who used to be so controlling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I've kind of let go of some of that control. That's probably a good thing. So I did some step work with one of my fellow travelers, and that was really great. And we, I don't think, cross-talked all over each other. And then I went to an online ACA meeting. I will have my Al-Anon home group tomorrow, which is amazing. I love my Al-Anon home group. I'm the treasurer for that home group. My week is just fixing to be pretty good. It's fixing to be pretty good. Thank you. How about you, Spencer? How about me? So last Sunday, the meeting on Sunday, we usually read one or more of the daily readers and then share our response to what was in there. And there were two readings that that different people suggested. One was from Courage to Change, which talked about patience and recovery, about sometimes we reach a plateau and it seems like we're not making any progress and then suddenly things open up for us. And the other one was from the Al-Anon Reader, Hope for Today, which was about it was about the the slogan "Let go and let God," but it put it in the context of, of being a gardener, where as a gardener we can prepare the bed and plant the seeds and fertilize and water, but what comes up, what grows, is basically out of our control. <laughs> I really connected with both those readings. What I shared on was more to the first one, recognizing that there have been times in my tenure in in Al-Anon, which is some number of years now, there have been times when I really felt that I had made like amazing progress and growth and whatever. And then there were times when when I just was kind of phoning it in. To put it bluntly and a little over over exaggerating, but that I very much feel like I got out of the program what I put into it. And there were times when when, you know, my program was doing the literature and going to meetings. And there were times when I was actively working the steps, meeting with my sponsor regularly. And, and that looking back, I could actually sort of correlate <laughs> how much I put in with how much I got out. This is relevant to me now because a newcomer in one of my meetings uh, asked about starting a small step study group. I spoke up and said, yeah, that, that had been really helpful for me in the past that I'd been in a couple and it had really, you know, been a positive experience. And so then the question was, well, <laughs> would you, <laughs> would you like to, you know, sort of guide us or whatever? And I'm like, okay, I'll come along as a, as a resource, you know, because also I need it. Mm-hmm. And then we had this reading and this, this recognition that, that when I put more into the program, I get more out of it. And, and it was a nice, um, probably not coincidence. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. So we're working on the hardest part with this kind of thing is like where and when, where can we get together and how often and, and we're getting that worked out and, and I'm being very non directing here. (laughs) (laughs) Like, should we meet every week or every other week? Well, I, you know, I think what works for the most people is what we should do. 
well, we could meet in my house, but only every other week. Well, that sounds like what could work, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying. I'm trying. And then and then last night I, I got together with my daughter who, you know, wanted advice, right? I am her father. I'm supposed to, like, give advice, I guess. Right. But what I've learned here is that it really works a lot better when we find our own way to what's the right answer for us, which my advice might not be. And so I really tried to take the experience I had working with other people in recovery program to ask questions, to make statements, but not to say, and this is what I think you should do. Cause mm -hmm. honestly, I don't know what she should do. And it was a really, it was a great evening, you know, and I felt like we connected more deeply than, you know, maybe we had before. Awesome. And that's because of what I've learned. Absolutely. So for the podcast coming up, these feel to me like topics that have been sitting in the wings or whatever for, for a long time. Parenting is one that several people have asked about. I think that comes down into two different actual topics. One is being a parent in a family where the other parent is the alcoholic and, mm -hmm. and how to best parent your children, how to well parent your children best. I don't know. And the other one is being the parent of a child who is suffering from addiction or alcoholism. Those are really important topics. And, and I really want to, I really want to do them justice. And I do have some contributions from, um, people who listen to the podcast and thank you so much for those. And, and just like this one, like I've been talking about this for a long time and, and this week it all came together and thank you. Thank you, Emily, for, you know, stepping up and saying, Hey, I'd like to participate. And even though it was a couple months ago when you said that, um, and I finally came back and said, yeah, let's do it. And you said, yes, um, I, I really, I really am, am grateful for that. Um, and the other topic that I've been talking about for a while is Alateen because many of us, have children who probably could benefit either now or later, or maybe they could have in the case of my children. And so if you have thoughts, if you have experienced strength and hope to share about either of these topics, please join our conversation, leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your, your feedback or your questions. And Emily, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send an email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about the ACA program or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about, let us know. And you can get all the information about the show at our website, which is therecovery.show, if we haven't said that enough yet. We have notes for each episode, links to the music that we talk about. I don't play music in the podcast anymore. I used to, but then there's like this whole copyright thing, and I just don't want to get in trouble. So we just talk about it, and we then put YouTube videos on the website. So go to the website, check them out, because Emily's picked some great songs for this this episode. We have a contact page at therecovery.show slash contact, which has details on contributing your voice to The Recovery Show. If you don't remember the phone number, if you don't remember the email address, 
therecovery.show slash contact or contact in the menu at the top of the page. Thank you. Emily, what's our second musical selection that you chose? Sure. Our second song is titled Worried About. It's by an artist named Lissy. And this song, I think, really fits with the topics codependency <laughs> that we've discussed is um, in both Al-Anon and ACA. Both of these programs, like I said earlier, showed me how codependent I was with the alcoholics in my life. And a really big part of that codependency was worrying and assessing, constantly assessing the state of my alcoholic parent. And then later, every other alcoholic or addict that I decided I was responsible for. at the mailbag it's been actually a couple weeks because last week um, I reposted a retro best of whatever episode so it's been a couple weeks and we got several responses about the open talk by Sam V which you know I really enjoyed and apparently some of you connected with as well Monica had a question Um, she wrote hello my name is Monica I'm Mexican living in the US for seven years I started Al-Anon in Mexico, and the first thing that I did after moving to the USA was to find a group. I found the best home group here in the Woodlands, Texas. I'm starting to sponsor, but this episode just got me a little confused on the sponsoring part. I loved the talk, just the way of sponsoring got me confused. Sam talks about looking for answers and doing whatever his sponsor says. I have learned or understand it differently. The way Sam talks about his sponsor seems to me that he is making his sponsor responsible for everything because he's just doing exactly what he or she says. My experience with my sponsor is more of suggestions and sharing her own story and that way letting me make my own decisions. That is the way I started my sponsoring path, sharing my experience, strength, and hope and suggesting every now and then. I know there are musts in Al-Anon, but I have learned we do not tell others what to do. Thank you, Monica. And, you know, I wrote back to Monica and, and said I would share uh, a little more deeply on the podcast because I think this is, this is important to, and it is confusing. There are many different ways of being a sponsor and there are many different ways of being sponsored. My way of being a sponsor is, as I said earlier, is to try not to give direction even when my sponsee asks, what should I do? But to, to try to lead them to what is, what is a reasonable, a good way for them to proceed. I feel like also in the sponsor sponsee relationship, it is more open. It is more personal than sharing in a meeting. And so I will say things like, that sounds kind of codependent <laughs> or, I don't think I would do that, (laughs) but I really, really try hard because I know me. I know me to stomp on my desire to tell somebody what to do. And so I don't know with Sam whether his sponsor was more directive or whether Sam understood what he heard from his sponsor as direction. Because when, when we tell our story, we tell our story from inside ourselves. And we tell our story with our particular 
glasses on, our particular filters on our experience. And so when Sam tells his story and he says, I called my sponsor and my sponsor said, do this or don't do that. I don't know. And I will never know whether that's actually what his sponsor said or that's how Sam heard it. I also believe that we each of us with probably some fumbling about end up finding the people that we need to walk with us, to guide us, to lead us in this path of recovery. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Emily. Yeah, my sponsor doesn't tell me what to do. Well, sometimes she does, you know, she'll be like, open up paths to recovery and and do the questions and then come talk to me. That's telling me what to do. But <laughs> but if I come to her and say, you know, oh my gosh, I'm so forlorn, here's my problem. You know, she doesn't tell me what to do. Yeah, I don't know. But I think, yeah, I've only had one sponsor. So I'm certain there's more than one way to sponsor. So I'm not sure. And I know that you know, the way that I would sponsor might be different than the way my sponsor sponsors. So I think that's part of the appeal to these programs too, is that, you know, you find the sponsor that works for you. That's part of it. That's really neat. So I, I, I like your, your take on it. Who knows what, what actually happened if, if that's just how Sam was hearing it, or if that's his sponsor was saying, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to do this. <laughs> We'll never know. And and actually, just in the past few moments while you were talking, I realized that with different sponsees, I actually do act differently. I do say different things. I have a number of sponsees who first came into the program through AA and Mm -hmm. who are used, I think, to a more direct mode of sponsorship. (laughs) Yeah. And and with them, I might be more direct. It is a very personal thing, and it, it and it does. It we're not all the same. Thank God. <laughs> yes, exactly. Got a short email from Laurent about Sam's open talk, who wrote, "The talk from Sam V brought tears to my eyes. I needed to hear that. We'll look for a meeting first thing tomorrow. Thank you." <sighs> that just speaks to why I do this podcast. Because if I can help in some small way to bring people to recovery, it's more than I need. We got a voicemail here from from somebody named Emily. (laughs) (laughs) Also about Sam's talk. I think that was you, wasn't it? I think it was, yeah. All right. Let's let's listen. Hi, Spencer. It's Emily in Indiana. I just listened to episode... Which one is it? 202, Sam V. Open Talk. And I often listen to the episodes when I'm sitting at my desk at work, and it really helps me in my recovery. I can kind of listen to it in the background, and it just, it really helps me being able to do that during the workday. So I was listening to that open talk, and when it got to the quote from Clancy, where he said, All I ask is that you treat me special all the time. And if you treat me special, I feel average. But if you treat me average, I feel rejected. Wow. That felt, I mean, I felt like I was hit with a bag of bricks when I heard that. Because it applies to me. (laughs) It was difficult to admit that it applied to me. So it was good to hear 
So I'm really grateful that you shared that open talk. I'm really grateful for your podcast and thank you for continuing to do what you do. And and thank you for doing what you're doing today. And yeah, I totally, I, I totally connect with that, that thing that, that uh, Clancy said. Yeah. You need to treat me special. So I'll feel average because if you just treat me average, I feel like I'm going to put it in my own words. I feel like I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I can't go out and, and ask you to treat me that way. Oh, yeah. No. You need to do it just out of the goodness of your heart, right? Mm-hmm. And read my mind. And read my mind. And read my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for calling in. I, I, <laughs> and, I, and when I was putting together the, the today's... Today's episode, I was like, oh, um, I wonder how this is going to, how is Emily going to feel about listening to herself? <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> it It is. It is. Oh, but it's okay. Um, you know, when I started doing this, I hated the way my voice sounded recorded. I just, ah, like, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard kind of hated it. But I, I actually listen, in a sense, to epi- each episode at least three times. Once when I'm doing it, where I'm not really listening. Once when I'm editing it, where I'm really focusing on all the things I don't like about what I said so I can cut them out. <laughs> and then I listen to it again when it comes around in, in my podcast player. The the middle one there, listening to it while I'm editing it, is very much like a four-step inventory. <laughs> in that it's painful, but I learn things. And I still don't like the way my voice sounds, but I'm used to it. I have a friend that told me today that you have a very soothing voice. I've heard that. <laughs> so there's that. And and thank you. Thank you. And that's something I've learned in the program is just to say thank you. Yeah, me too. I've learned that as well. Okay. Because what's your what was your response before you like found recovery when somebody complimented you? I would have found things to go, no, 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 no. Yep. No, no, I couldn't take compliments at all. Yep, right there, mm-hmm. right there. I, mean, with I you. still struggle with it. I still struggle with it every day, but I'm getting better. Yeah, no. I every time I remember to just say thank you, I feel that as a huge victory. Yeah, it is. We got an email from from Carrie. Would you like to read that? Sure. She says, "Hi there. Hope you're very well. The topics have been so great lately. Thank you." I've been thinking about all of these things lately and thought they might make good topics. I can record with you or help prepare readings and music or anything. Sorry, it's kind of a messy list. Thanks. Best, Carrie. So she suggests hypervigilance um, from Courage to Change, page 95. Alcoholism as a disease. Spiritual awakenings. Detach with love. Parenting. Living with an active alcoholic. Making decisions. Those are all very good topics. You know, that's another thing I love about Al-Anon, AA, ACA, all these things. We're never going to run out of topics. Never. (laughs) We're never Never. going to run out of topics. I'm going to have to keep coming back forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's okay. And, And the thing, one of the things that I've discovered doing the podcast is I can come back to the same topic. Yeah. And have a completely different conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm sure you run into that in meetings as well. Like mm-hmm. Somebody says, yeah, let's talk about gratitude. Well, geez, we just talked about that a year ago. Do we need to talk <laughs> about it again? 
<laughs> you know. Oh, good. oh yeah, yeah. Two hundred and three episodes now. How? Who'd have thunk? It's amazing. Got an email from Zujata who asks, "Hello, Spencer. I want to make a small donation, but it doesn't show on the mobile site." Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a thing that that I'm not completely happy with. What I wrote back was, it is there, but on the mobile site on your phone or probably on a tablet, you have to scroll almost all the way to the bottom. You have to scroll past whatever three or four episodes are, are shown on that on that screen to get to the place where you can tap on the donation button. So I really appreciate those people who have the patience to do that because it does cost money to make this thing happen much as I wish it didn't. I do this not because of I want to make money off of it. I do this because people helped me and and I, I'm paying it forward. So I appreciate whatever people can do to uh, to support the show. And one of the actually one of the best things you can do to support the show is just tell people about it. It is there if you want to if you want to hit the button. And uh, we had several people who had, you know, sort of little technical issues. Jennifer was looking for episode eight, couldn't find it. And also episodes one through seven. And what happened there was I had set a limit on the number of episodes that would show up in iTunes or in your podcast app on your phone, whatever you're listening, to 200. And when I got to episode 200, they started disappearing off the beginning. And it used to be, back when I set that limit, that 200 was like as far as you could go with iTunes or something. And now it's 300. So I changed the number to 300. So episodes one through eight and all the others should now be visible again. Um, and they're always, they're always all on the website. They're always there on the website. And you can go to the recovery.show slash one and find episode one or two or whatever. So they're there, but you know, that may be a little harder on your phone. And she continues, your show provides me with clarity about things I couldn't quite grasp. Love the guests, the voicemails and the emails. They add texture to the program. Be strong and peaceful, Jennifer. I just have to echo having multiple voices. If I was just doing this by myself without anybody else contributing to the conversation, I would feel like it was boring. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I love how she ended that email. Be strong and peaceful. So hard. That makes me feel strong just reading that. Yep. And finally, another sort of technical question about the Amazon shopping button. Michelle writes, I always use it. Huge Amazon shopper. Now it's gone. How do I donate by shopping? And I don't really know like why she couldn't find it. It may be the same thing. Like she was on her phone and it's all the way at the bottom or what, but it, as far as I can tell, it's still there. And the, the deal there is if you click on that button and then shop at Amazon, we get somewhere between like three and 4% of what you buy, which doesn't sound like a lot, but every little bit is, is helpful. You know, it allows me to like buy an ebook uh, on recovery or something. So that's cool. I really appreciate it when people do that, but if you don't remember it, that's okay too. She continues, thank you for your wonderful service. I've referred so many friends to you. Your calming voice, here we go, calming voice has gotten mm-hmm, us mm-hmm. all through some really tough times. And referring friends, just, you know, pass the message, please. And we've already talked about donation button and stuff, so I'm going to skip all that. Why don't you tell us about our last song? Okay. My last song selection is titled Come a Little Closer. It's by Cage the Elephant, and you can listen to it at therecovery.show slash 203. I really like this song. I chose it as the last song for the episode because what I have found 
in ACA is that I move closer to the program. My true self reveals itself a little more every day. And my false self, which is the part that was scared and I had all these masks that were up all the time. Like I talked earlier about all these walls that I had built up for protection. Um, So that's kind of what I'm referring to as my false self. So as I move closer into the program, those masks kind of fall away and my true self kind of starts to reveal itself and I get to know myself better. And I like that person a lot better than this old, scared person that I used to be. So ACA is really, it really does beautiful things. If you work it and you push through all the fear and the scary emotions and all that crazy business. (laughs) Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk, if we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. My understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.